In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void, and chaos was over the face of the deep. But the face of God was growing gently over the waters. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and in him was life, and life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. On the earth there was a land called Eden, and within Eden, in the east, there was a garden. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And the Lord God created man and placed him in the garden of Eden. Adam, meaning human, and Eve, meaning mother of all living. Humanity and life, side by side. These two were to be divine representatives of God, bearing his image out from the garden into Eden and beyond, cultivating life, beauty, and order into the whole world. They walked with God, they talked with God, and God told them that they were allowed to eat of any fruit of the tree in the garden, except the tree of knowing good and bad. Tov Vecha. Adam and Eve were the crown jewel of God's creation. <laughs> they were very good, working in perfect harmony with everything and everyone around them. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he tricked the woman. And she ate. And she gave some to her husband who was standing next to her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened. Suddenly, they heard the sound of God walking in the wind, and they ran and hid themselves from him high up in the trees. And the Lord God called to them and said, Where are you? Where are you? To the serpent, the Lord said, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And with that, humanity was launched out of the garden and into the cold and cracking world of the wilderness. And we, the reader, we go right along with them. We go with them with the same hopes that they carry, the same anticipation, since we must feel the same sort of divine connection to them. After all, if we were to stand up and look around at our own world, we might see that we ourselves choose to know right from wrong over God every single day, perpetuating what started in the garden oh so long ago. We read on in the story, holding our breath, that from the seed of the woman a man will come to crush the head of the snake, though the snake might hurt his heel. But after all, Adam 
was the one crushed by the snake. But a man will come to crush the snake himself. And so we believe it. We move along, and we meet Cain, meaning gotten, for Eve had gotten a man by the hand of the Lord. We see Adam was created in right relationship with God. He was a righteous person. And Adam was created to have a special relationship to the created order. And so we hope that perhaps the coming snake crusher will be the same, righteous and a redeemer. But instead of falling into the sin of Adam, the snake crusher will rise above it. Perhaps Cain will be the righteous redeemer of the land. Trust me when I say he wasn't. The spiral of sin and death begins to fall faster and faster, swiftly downward as we are ripped away from the story of Cain and Abel, and we find ourselves drifting toward Noah. Noah is a righteous man, the scriptures tell us, and he's called to save the land from total destruction. He's called to redeem it when the floods subside. We also see that he has a special relationship with other human beings around him. This is what we called justice and it's tied closely to righteousness and redemption. And when Noah gets off the ark with his family, the heavens open up and a voice speaks and God says, be fruitful and multiply. We see this as a new creation, an epoch, a new era, dashed to pieces by Noah and his sons who break through the brokenness of humanity and commit unspeakable acts of injustices. The biblical story slows down here after Genesis 11. It opened up, after all, with all of humanity and is now focused in on one specific human family, the family of Abraham. Abraham comes on scene with all of the attributes to crush the head of the snake. A man handpicked by God, he is righteous, just, and a redeemer of the created order. Indeed, the basis, it would seem, for all the characters moving forward. Abraham... Isaac, Jacob, and Jacob's twelve sons all form vignettes around each other and are righteous, just redeemers. And they all fall basically into the same problem. They, too, are crushed by the snake. Sin rules in their hearts and in their lives. A famine pushes the entire family south into Egypt, and there they stay for several hundred years, under the close protection of Pharaoh. They called themselves Israelites. But one day, a new Pharaoh rose over Egypt, and he did not know the Israelites. He feared them, for they were large in number, and so he laid on them hard and burdensome work by making them architect large storehouses of grain for his palace. But the Hebrews did not rest from growing larger. So, the pharaoh commissioned a decree that killed all of the firstborn babies of the Hebrew women. But the loving hand of a mother, or indeed the loving hand of the father, could not stop the baby boy Moses from drifting into the hands of pharaoh. Moses grew up amongst the royal family, until one day, armed with his sense of justice, kills an Egyptian for harming a Jewish man. Terrified of the repercussions, Moses runs into the wilderness where he meets God in a burning bush. God said to Moses that because he was righteous, he would be a just redeemer. 
Moses goes back to Pharaoh, and nine plagues befall the house of Pharaoh, before Pharaoh listens to Moses and his brother Aaron. Nine plagues, and a tenth to set them free. For as Pharaoh killed every firstborn, so did the tenth plague, killing every firstborn child that was not in a house with the blood of the lamb over the door. When the Jewish people walked through the Red Sea on dry ground, they sing a song of deliverance, and in that moment, the people of God become the nation of God. As their first act as a nation, they were to architect a temple to their new king, Yahweh. As opposed to building ambiguous storehouses of grain, they now build the house of God. We see that the snake crusher, too, will architect the temple of God. Now that the people of God are the nation of God, they are set apart, marked as holy from other nations. They must follow certain laws and customs to remain set apart from the other nations, and if they violate these laws, they must offer various forms of sacrifices and perform various rituals and be brought into the presence of God by a priest. Moses was one, Aaron was one, and the snake crusher will also need to be one. A priest, after all, is someone who brings the people into the presence of God. It is one of three offices we see leading the people of Israel throughout their history. Two of the other offices are the king and the prophet. All three are tied closely together, sometimes even manifesting in one person, but the snake crusher will need to be all three perfectly. A leader for the people of God, leading them into right relationship with each other, leading them into the presence of God, and ultimately leading them into right relationship to God. But Moses cannot live up to this standard. He has his good moments of leadership, sure, like when he divides up the judicial work among the tribes, but he has his moments of deep failure as well, like when he acts out of anger and unbelief and fails to beseech his king, God. So, when Moses dies, another rises to take his place. He is a warrior, strong at the heart and of good courage as long as he knows that the Lord is with him. His name is Joshua, meaning Yahweh is my salvation. And Joshua is righteous, just, a redeemer, a prophet, priest, and king, leading the nation of Israel through fierce battles as they rage to take over the promised land to settle and become the nation of Israel permanently. And Joshua knows that he can fight fierce battles because it is God fighting for him, but do his commanders know that? Do his troops know that? Does Israel know that? It doesn't seem so. For at the end of Joshua's life, he begs the leaders of Israel to serve Yahweh as their God, but they have already begun to worship the idols of Baal. And Joshua dies, being crushed by the ultimate enemy, the last battle, he loses. When Joshua dies, there's a severe power vacuum that takes over the hearts and minds of the people of Israel. This rages for hundreds of years as they clamor to figure out who's in power. Meanwhile, the Spirit of God is growing within the chaos, selecting and coming upon certain individuals who do not represent faithfully our snake crusher, but who nonetheless lead Israel. 
Though it would seem that by the end of the Book of Judges, they lead Israel into ruin. Throughout the era of the Judges, we see that they all fall prey to one major flaw. No matter how powerful, strong, or courageous they are, they all seem to do what is right in their own eyes. Just like Adam, just like Eve, just like everyone who came before them, the Judges are crushed by the snake one by one. We need a judge who is willing to say, not my will be done, but thy will be done. But it's too late. The damage is done. Civil war has broken out amongst the tribes of Israel after one woman is hacked to pieces and sent to the leaders throughout the nation. Kingship is not only inevitable, but desperately needed in the nation. So, when, in the quiet village of Shiloh, a woman prays so fervently she's mistaken as a drunk, our hearts rise in our chest. She prays for a son that will be anointed by the Lord. She prays for a son who will be a king, a ruler, a leader over Israel. She prays for a son who will crush the head of the snake. And this man will be God's Messiah. But it isn't her son. No. Her son is Samuel. Samuel is a prophet and a judge over Israel. The people, tired from war and fighting, beseech Samuel for a king. Though Samuel feels it's a bad idea to do what is right in their own eyes, the Lord grants him permission to give kingship to a man named Saul, a handsome, tall, strong warrior, who when we meet him, is deeply flawed. He becomes enraged easily, he's a coward, and ultimately is split down the middle like a degrading madman as greater, stronger warriors come his way. The strongest warriors that come his way are those that put their total trust in God, unlike Saul, like a young shepherd boy named David. If there were ever a snake crusher in the whole of the Hebrew Bible, it might as well have been David. He's a righteous, just redeemer of the land, a prophet, a priest, eventually a king, a warrior submissive to God's will, and most importantly, is anointed by God himself. In fact, he comes so close to crushing the head of the snake that God promises to make him a lineage that will never end. A man coming from his sons will have an eternal throne, God says. A man coming from his sons will be an eternal Messiah. But in the shocking turn of events, David is swiftly and decisively crushed by the snake when he has a man murdered to cover up his affair. This leads the nation of Israel to being wrenched into two, out of orbit, spinning into chaos, and ultimately exile. For because of David's sin, the kings that come after David do not have an eternal throne. None of them will live up to the kingship of David. Solomon might come close. He ushers in an era of Eden-like existence, but he also becomes the impetus for a long-standing civil war that breaks the nation in half. And all of the kings after Solomon, one by one, are taken over by unrighteousness, injustice, idolatry, and weak, 
poor, fragile leadership, all culminating into the tragic, traumatic exile of the Israelites from the Promised Land. But in the wilderness, there is a man who will not die. And to this man, a still small voice rises from the chaos. And God says that he will come to his people again. And the people will come back to their land. One hundred years later, a caravan of Israelites, ragged and war-torn, march back to their homes from the eastern city of Babylon. These return exiles are faced with a choice. They can repent and turn from the sins of their fathers or continue in their sinful ways of idolatry. It is their choice. As the narrative section of the Old Testament fades out, we should be left with a sense of incompleteness. The people are back in Israel. Some are doing better than others. But God is not present with them like he was before. His presence does not shine forth from the temple or from their hearts as they attempt to rebuild their own lives. The ending of the narrative Old Testament should leave us with disquietude. The snake crusher promised all the way in the beginning never came. We got really close, but ultimately all of them for thousands of years were crushed by the snake, even David. We need a man who will come to be righteous, just, usher us into that righteousness and just presence himself, a man who will lead us like a prophet, a priest, and a king, who will fight for us like a warrior, who will submit to God's will like a servant, who will bring Eden back to life, who will be anointed by God, who will call us to repent and turn from death, who will never die himself. We need someone. We desperately need someone to break through the chaos of this narrative. So praise God that in the beginning, God was hovering over the face of the chaos. Thank you so much. My name is Austin, and this was Bible Unbound. Thank you.